Voice America welcomes you to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Now, here's the host and CEO of BR Public Relations, Cindy Rakowitz. Good morning, everybody, and happy holidays. Since uh, this is a show about PR and branding, we thought it would be great to dedicate a show to how elements of the law impact your branding or how to utilize the law better to protect your brand. And in order to address these topics, we have specialist in this area, and he's an attorney by the name of Paul Menis. Welcome, Paul. Hi, Cindy. Hi. Well, welcome to our show. I know you were excited about it. Yes, um, thank you for having me. It should be um, um, interesting topic, something that uh, definitely intersects very closely with um, you know the PR side uh, of promoting somebody. Um, you know how the law affects it and things that you have to be aware of or or cater to sometimes to make it effective. Well, it's, I'm very very glad to have you. When I talk to lawyers, Paul, one of the things that I tell them, and a lot of them raise their eyebrows. So I think that you're an early adapter to recognizing the importance of law, particularly with the proliferation of social media. I tell them when I worked as a division president at Playboy and ran all marketing and PR, my, my partner in all of this in protecting the brand every day was really dealing with the general counsel's office. And lawyers in particular are actually surprised. But Playboy is one of those brands that actually recognize the importance of doing so probably way before a lot of others, and um, recognizing not only the importance of protecting a brand, but also um, it's not only important to manage things in a court of law, but it's also important to manage things in a court of opinion. And um, I was very, very happy to meet you because you really recognize this. Yeah, I agree. I mean, the court of opinion is much more important than the court of law. Uh, someone like me, my job is to make sure that you don't get anywhere near the court of law because once you get into a situation where you're in front of a judge or a jury, you've lost already. Because, you know, the only people that win in those situations really are the lawyers because they're the ones that get paid a lot of money. If it gets to that point to try and sort the problem out and uh, you know, once you're at that point it's pretty much a lost cause from a PR or branding standpoint anyway. So everybody should call Paul Menace to make sure that it doesn't get there. And, um, you know, for the website for Paul is www.menes.lawpc.com. So if anybody wants a background while they're tuning into the show, you could go there and find out all. But we're going to talk about, first, protecting the brand. You know all of the elements that are really important. In fact, you have... Um, sort of a, a one-sheet that talks about protecting your assets. And what it does is it defines the difference between you know, basic elements in IP law, which is um, you know, what's a patent, and what's a copyright, and what's a trademark, and when do you use each of these. And I found that to be very helpful. Do you want to talk a little bit about these elements of IP Sure. Um, as in any situation, covering your assets is very important. Um, the two most important things in a PR context are copyright and trademark. Trademark is your brand. Um, it used to be called trademark. It's now more often called branding. But what it basically is is your identifier. It is your, the thing that people rely on uh, to get certain goods or services. Uh, if a brand has cachet, 
um, people know and associate a certain quality with that brand. So if they just see the brand on something, they know they can expect a certain thing. So if, let's say, you're General Motors, and under your Chevrolet brand, you have manufactured cars for a long time, as they have, and people rely on a certain quality in that car, a certain look in that car. If Chevrolet, let's say, started suddenly manufacturing clothing, a lot of people would buy it merely because it was branded Chevrolet. So by using trademark for protection, it gives you a monopoly so that nobody else can mess with your brand. Nobody else can trade on your brand. No one else can use it for their stuff after you've spent a lot of time and money you know, building it up and promoting it to the public and giving it that association, which lawyers call secondary meaning, so it means something in the minds of the public. Copyright's a whole different thing, and people get confused. Copyright protects a work, an original work of authorship that somebody comes up with. Uh, it now includes digital media. Uh, before, now that there is digital media, it used to... The definition of it was it had to be in a tangible medium of expression, but... Uh, digital media is as tangible as something on uh, a record or a DVD or a piece of paper because you can perceive it. You can perceive it, you know, visually, you can hear it. So those are the two major things that you can protect uh, of intellectual property nature, um, which is important because, you know, if somebody is being promoted, if something is being promoted, if someone is promoting something, it, there's a reason for it because there's some quality or association with that person, and they want to protect that those valuable assets as much as possible, especially in the digital age where it's really easy to impersonate somebody, rip somebody off, make them look bad. Well, that's for sure. I think that the precedent again for early adopters in um, intellectual property relevance in in the digital world it it came when people were creating websites for themselves and i wasn't it madonna who somebody who realized that somebody else was impersonating her and then madonna couldn't get her url back and it was just very interesting yeah i have that happening now with one of my uh, actor clients who uh, is on a popular network television show has a huge twitter following and you know normally on twitter your handle is at and your name Somebody has and is using at this person's name. So what he's had to do is have at his first name and an underscore and a last name. And I've been fighting with them now for a while about um, my client being impersonated by this person or at least causing confusion in the minds of the public as to, you know, tweets coming from these handles, which is the actual guy and which is not the actual guy. No, I know. That's complicated. I think that you have to really go through great, um, you know, uh, brand reiterations to convince the end user that, you know, that I am indeed the celebrity and the other one is an impersonator. And you just have to keep on reinforcing that every day. Pretty much. But this isn't curing cancer. I mean, it's not that hard to do. And... Anybody that has a valuable brand or a valuable mark or a valuable piece of work needs to have a competent lawyer you know, on their, at their side um, just to kind of help them get through it in the least expensive way possible. And it's like the old saying, you know, you can pay me now, you can pay me later. Sometimes taking a step prophylactically 
is much less expensive, much easier, and much less of a hassle than trying to fix the problem after it happens, you know, way down the road and do damage control. I'm oh, sure it is. I mean, there are brands that, particularly internationally, and I don't know how much, you know, you could go into this, but if I remember at Playboy Enterprises that um, in France, somebody owned the name Playboy, and it was very hard for U.S. Playboy to get it back. I don't even know if they did to this day. And um, what precautions or how can you be prophylactic, to use your word, in terms of the international problems that might occur in terms of brand ownership? You, register, you have them registered for trademark. Um, I've had very similar problems to that in uh, countries outside the U.S., especially for counterfeit goods where... For example, they took in Taiwan, I think, they used the name of a, uh, a rock star that we happened to represent back in the day and the name of a famous clothing line, put them together and put out goods under this name. <clears throat> so, of course, we took umbrage, I'm sorry, we took umbrage at, and my client took umbrage at using his name with this, you know, cheap manufactured garbage and the other name used in the brand, um, they, of course, were a very high-end uh, manufacturer of, of clothing and bags and such things, high-end enough that they think they still have a store on Rodeo Drive in Beverly Hills. And the way it was stopped is uh, my client's name was registered for trademark pretty much all over the world. Their brand was registered pretty much all over the world. And uh, we were able to snuff it out and um, get them to stop doing it because we were able under the law in Taiwan, which is similar to ours for trademark and having it registered there, to go after these folks and, um, you know, basically put them out of business. It took a minute, but it was accomplished. So protecting the brand is the first step, I think, with anything. And as I said, it's not real complicated. It's not tremendously expensive. So if you're a celebrity, um, you register your name, literally your name, uh, for trademark in the U.S. if you're based here. Uh, if you're a company, uh, I always say you do it as early as possible because not only do you want to protect it, you want to make sure that somebody hasn't beaten you to it with the same or a similar brand, which is just as bad. You know, you're, you've, you've started to promote yourself and then you get a cease and desist letter from a lawyer saying you have to stop because you're trading on our brand and that's expensive, that's a hassle, you have to rebrand yourself, whatever money you've spent, goodwill you've established, basically, uh, you know, is in the toilet and you have to, you have to just start from scratch. No, I think that more and more people have to recognize today the importance of brand protection because in the world of Twitter, and we'll talk about that more in the next segment, um, you, everybody's a brand. I, I don't think till this time when everybody can create themselves as a brand on, you know, on social media pages that the protection of one's brand became so important. If, uh, you know, and you got to go and, you know, buy these names or go through the process of protecting these names. And, I, you know, you might want to talk about the pricing for, um, you know, how much it is and how the categories work because a lot of people have no idea. 
And if you register a brand in one category, it's not necessarily protected in another category. And because you're a specialist in this area, Paul, I think that perhaps in the next segment, since we have only a couple of minutes left to this one, maybe you could give listeners an idea of how you approach it and how you could be as broad as possible with all of the categories that, you know, one has to consider. Does that sound like a good deal? Yeah, it's um, easy to do, and uh, I think it's important that people have a feel for what's involved um, if they have an existing brand or if they're starting with a brand new one. Okay, well, we're going to take a commercial break, and um, I think everybody should stay tuned because this is a really relevant show for those of you in the branding and PR business. So many mistakes are made, and so much damage can be done if you're not making efforts to protect your brand, and Paul Menace is the guy that can really give you insight, and that's www.menacelawpc.com. And, um, Paul, in the next segment when we open up, you could talk a little bit about your background, too, because it would make sense to people as to why you ended up going into the IP areas, one of your, um, you know, your areas of practice and expertise. So don't go away. Come back more on IP law and branding after this commercial break. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At VR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. VR Public Relations gets the job done. Whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of VR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.vrpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. VR Public Relations. We do it all. www.vrpublicrelations.com. Stimulating talk. It gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Stars of PR with Cindy R. If you have a question or comment, call in at 1-866-472-5788. Now, back to the show. Here's Cindy Rakowitz. We're back, and we're talking about intellectual property, an important subject. So, Paul Menes is here to help us explore this subject. And, Paul, why don't you talk about your background, because I know you grew up in the music industry and how you realized that that all became relevant to um, intellectual property. Well, that's true. I had aspirations. My original um, job desire was rock star, and I was pretty convinced I was going to be able to do that. Um, And I took some time off after college to try and do that and wrote music and scored student films in college and 
things like that. And during the year I took off, I realized two things, that I was never going to be a rock star, and that, um, but I, that I wanted to be around the music business. So sometimes friends of mine would ask me to look at a contract because, you know, I did have a college degree um, in the studio a couple of times. You know, they said, hey, well, you know, they want me to sign this um, American Federation of Musicians, the union contract you sign when you play sessions and whatnot. And, you know, I don't understand it. Can you read this? And I realized I could be around what I love without having to, you know, actually play an instrument to earn a living at it. So um, I decided to go to law school. I started life as a litigator, um, as much as I hate the suits and ties. But, and it gave me a good background about the kinds of things that can go wrong. And I, you know, followed that path. I wound up getting um, working for some music firms and, you know, basically became a music attorney represented and still do to some degree uh, artists and, and producers and record companies and pretty much different kinds of clients all over the music business. And the intellectual property thing started when one of our acts had a fight uh, between some of the members about who owned the name of the band. Because a guy got thrown out of the band for bad behavior and back in the, um, in the early 80s, you really had to do something that was bad behavior to get thrown out of a band. Things weren't quite as politically correct as they are now. And they started arguing in my office, well, I'm going to use the name. No, you're not. It's my name. I came up with the name. And I realized this was an issue, as did a lot of people at that time who did what I did. So it became very important when you had a multi-person artist, a band, to legislate this early on. You know, what happens if somebody leaves the band? You know, who gets to use this brand? And it's something that is very important. A lot of heritage acts that are on the road now um, have none of the original members, or maybe they'll have one original member, and because it's a brand, people, you know, want to go see this band. Oh, my God, they're back on the road again. And you go see them, and it's, you know, it's almost like a cover band. It's not them. No, it's, um, and it really kind of disappoints, um, you know, ticket buyers sometimes. I, I think that diehard fans probably follow everything and know everything about who went where. But for those that like, um, you know, a Jefferson airplane song and they're going to see Jefferson Starship, there's, sometimes there's disappointment. Oh, yeah. I just heard um, on the radio an ad for a guy coming to Los Angeles on tour who is the voice or was the voice of Supertramp, which was a very popular artist back in the 70s and 80s. And it was conspicuously absent from his ad the name Supertramp. And it dawned on me he probably can't use it because he doesn't own it. So this is the guy that's the voice. This is the guy, his name's Roger Hudson, that is on every Supertramp record in life as the main vocalist, very distinctive voice, and he can't say he's Supertramp. He can only use his name and hope people recognize the name and, of course, the music played on the ad and come to it. But there have been Herculean battles by members of famous bands about who gets to use the name, you know, when they tour. So... That was sort of the start of it. Copyright was always an element of that because, um, you know, as I said, copyright attaches to works. You write a song, you write a screenplay, you know, you do choreography. All of those things are protected by copyright. So, of course, starting as a music lawyer, we were concerned with protecting the publishing of the song, the ownership of the song itself. There were copyright issues with the recordings. And, you know, as my practice progressed, I 
started doing these things uh, with film and with television, and I was very lucky to get into new media early, kind of as an accident. I was asked to consult to uh, the first two, if not a couple of the first two, um, uh, online uh, digital delivery services, and this was a long time ago. They were horrible. They didn't work. There was no broadband. It was DOS-based. But since then, I have always worked in digital media as an intellectual property lawyer, you know, both relating to entertainment and not relating to entertainment. I do a lot of work for clients that have nothing to do with entertainment. Well, I mean, again, it, you know, entertainment is the exciting part of it, but... You know, the precedents still apply to other areas of law, so you just have the exciting experience. Well, you know, yeah, it's kind of exciting, but I mean, it's only exciting because the names are a little more exciting, but otherwise it's, um, it, it's basically the same, but yeah, it's uh, probably a lot more fun to say you represent somebody that's popular in the culture than to say you represent, you know, the, the Jones Bleach Company. True that. Well, I have a question for you, though. I mean, in... These battles, what I found a lot, and tell me if this is accurate, that a former person from a brand usually can get away with, and you tell me, you know, legally how right or wrong this is, if they say formally from Supertramp or formally from the doors, um, isn't that a part of their biographical information? It is, but it's a very kind of gray area, which is, of course, why people love lawyers, because we never have a straight answer to a straight <laughs> question. I know. Um, well, at least you understand how to step outside of it and realize that. <laughs> yeah, I try. I mean, because it really, at the end of the day, it's all about, you know, finding the solution, you know. All the legal niceties are wonderful, and the intellectual arguments are fabulous, but at the end of the day, the job is to, how do we get this done? So, a lot of times, that is a point of negotiation when who owns a brand is legislated on paper when there's an agreement drawn up, which, which at best is way at the beginning of the relationship when nobody can leverage anybody else and there's, you know, decisions are made and they're put in a contract and everybody signs off on it. Sometimes, you, if a, let's say, a member leaves a band, you're allowed to say formally of. Uh, but there are situations where you are not allowed to say that, um, one that comes to mind, and it may have changed over the last couple of years, but one of the most famous battles is the Beach Boys. Right. I don't think a couple of the remaining members are allowed to even say they are formally of. Well, is that because the contracts were written properly from the beginning, establishing for each of the artists that the Beach Boys is owned and operated by Beach Boys only, and... Um, you know, anybody that's with the band understands that, you know, if they are to leave the band, the property is Beach Boys and not your own. Well, it, it wasn't because back in the day, nobody even thought of these things. You know, a branding wasn't that big a deal. It's like, you know, a bunch of guys form a band, they play, they go into a studio, they make a record. If they get very lucky, the record blows up. And it's only, you know, as time passes and they begin to think, you know, they walk on water that these things pop up. You know, who really is the band? You know, who are the Beach Boys? Are you a Beach Boy? Am I a Beach Boy? I wrote all the music. Nah, I sang all the stuff. It's me. So with them, as I understand it, because I was not involved, never represented them, uh, one of them was particularly uh, litigious, litigious, I should say, and wound up fighting some of the others for the rights to the name. And I believe 
as part of the settlement of this, after you know they each hired a bunch of guys in gray suits that uh, beat each other up for a long time in court and spent a boatload of money doing it, they came to an agreement about how this could be done. Well, you know, again, you know, precedents take place, and then, you know, like you said, it's um, a matter of always finding solutions based on existing information, and you're right, this whole, you know, brand ownership thing, particularly in the world of digital media, became a whole different animal than it was, you know, pre-Beach Boys. (laughs) So... You know, you can only find the solutions based on, you know, what you know and what has taken place. It's all very, very interesting um, to a lot of people. And that's why I think it's really important if you have developed a brand to make sure that you get your I's dotted and your T's crossed with a lawyer to make sure that there's never a question about brand ownership. Now, in the earlier segment, Paul, and I encourage listeners to go back to it, we talked quite a lot about defining patents and copyrights and trademarks and their differences. Um, When you look at the categories of ownership, they're daunting. And a lot of times, even though it's not very expensive to, quote-unquote, buy a category or register under a category, Sometimes you have to register under several to be fully protected. How do you help your clients navigate through that process? I mean, it can get very costly if a category costs, let's say, $300 to register. And then, of course, there's legal fees on top of that. So how do you streamline the process? It's always less expensive to prevent a problem from happening than it is to, you know, clean the mess up after the problem occurs. So... It's a cost of doing business. Um, if somebody's starting a business or starting a brand, uh, these are things that should be done as early as possible. And, you know, yeah, it can be expensive. But if you amortize it over the life of your business or your brand, especially if your brand becomes popular, it is a bargain. But the first thing you do or you need to do is figure out which of those classes you need to operate in and therefore you know which of the which are the classes you need to try to protect your brand in everything in life is divided into 45 classes 45 categories around the world it's a very standardized system so uh, depending on what you're making or what services you're providing it fits into one of those 45 classes and if you're doing several things then it's optimal to protect it in several um, Using music, just because it's an easy example, um, if you're an artist um, and you want to register your band name, uh, you probably need to do it in a couple of different categories, or you used to only have a couple of categories. One would be, for example, live performances. One would be the manufacture of um, recordings themselves. Uh, and now, of course, with branding, I mean, there are ca- you know, you might want to protect your name for clothing, you know, for the merchandise they sell at concerts. Um, you know, if you're going to have a, a website, uh, an interactive website, let's say, that's a separate category or two um, in terms of, you know, the website itself, you know, the interactivity of the website, the fact it stores data. So you go to an experienced lawyer and you say, hey, this is what I want to do. And then the lawyer will say, okay, if you want to do this, 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 and that, 
and here are the classes, and we should do a search to make sure that, those, that, that your brand is available in those classes. So, again, you're not in the situation where, you know, you're started under a head of steam and you get, you know, a, a really nasty cease and desist, lawyer, cease and desist letter from a lawyer saying you've got to stop. And it's serious. I mean, once you've infringed a copyright or a trademark in this instance, a lot of times you just can't say, oh, I'm so sorry, I'll stop right now. You've already infringed it. And usually the infringed party demands you pay them something for you know, uh, infringing their brand. Well, there's damages, you know? Yeah. So, well, so the smart thing is don't even go there. See if it's available to use to start with. And sometimes you have to do several searches. Um, to find, you know, a brand that is available. Um, a proper search is, depending on the lawyer and, and exactly how it's done, I can't tell you what other people charge. I can tell you what I charge. Uh, for a full, proper, complete U.S. trademark search, it's $1,100, most of which goes to the outside service that puts the raw data together. The, um, uh, there's several companies that do this. And then I look at it, and it's literally raw data. It can be two, three inches of, of paper, digitally or physically. Um, and I go through it and decide if I think the brand's protectable in those well, classes or some of the classes. Well, that and, sounds like it's a streamlined process. We're going to have to take a commercial break, Paul. Again, I told you that this show goes very fast. I know when we initially talked, you're like, oh, my God, how are we going to fill an hour? As you can see, we could fill it very, very easily. So um, we're going to take another commercial break. We're going to continue to talk about intellectual property and branding in the next couple of segments with Paul Menace. So stand by. Don't go away. And do go back and listen to the earlier segments so you don't miss a beat. the experts. Call toll-free right now, 1-866-472-5787, and ask our all-star team to answer your question. That's 1-866-472-5787. Thank you for calling. VoiceAmerica.com. Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At BR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. BR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of BR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.brpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. BR Public Relations. We do it all. www.brpublicrelations.com. Streaming live. The leader in internet talk radio. VoiceAmerica.com. Get free advice from crisis communications guru Cindy Rakowitz now. Call 866-472-5788. Let's get back to Stars of PR. Here's the host and CEO of BR Public Relations, Cindy Rakowitz. Well, we're back and we're talking about intellectual property and we are with Paul Menace 
to help us navigate through this area. And, um, Paul, is there anything that you want to add in, you know, summarizing what we had discussed in navigating and streamlining the, um, you know, the class process? Yeah, just real briefly, you've done the search, the search is righteous, the mark is available. You then file an application with the U.S. Patent and Trademark Office to register your brand. Um, in each class you do it, it's, it's $325, and the application itself to prepare and file it is about 1000 depending on how complicated and long the application is. Um, takes about a year to wend its way through the system. There's some legal fees involved, depending on how much back and forth there is with the trademark office. But doing the search really cuts down a lot on the legal fees and costs during that year. And then once it's registered, you get to put that R with the circle next to your brand. But there are things you can do in the meantime. And I, you know, I, I represent and have represented a lot of startup companies and people that are just starting out, and they don't have that kind of money. So one thing people can do is, um, when you start using a brand, is to put a little TM next to it wherever it's used. If it's a trademark, a little SM if you're offering services, to let the world know that you are claiming this as your brand. Um, some people think if they, re- if they um, start a, an entity, a corporation, uh, an LLC, and you know what they call register the name for that, you know, file papers, let's say, with the state of California, to incorporate, that that protects you. It doesn't protect you. Um, it only gives you the right to use that name as your company name. So a lot of people will go online and you know, do searches for the brand, and if nothing comes up, they figure, oh, great, it's available. That's not necessarily true, but it's sort of better than nothing. But I guess the point is, if you're really serious about starting a business or establishing a brand, you know, if you're starting a business, you've got to spend money. You need to buy supplies. You might need an office. And if the brand, the brand is the most valuable thing, and protecting it is the most important thing. Oh no, I think that's true. But on the other side, I just want to say, and I'm, you know, I'm sorry that this doesn't really help the um, the importance of registering. Case is if a person really knows who you are. If you're a service provider, I'm not talking about a gigantic brand. I'm talking about somebody that's really happy to do business as, you know, in a in a limited area which, um, you know, practicing their areas of expertise day in, day out, at the end of the day, if they're a service provider, people know that they are dealing with a certain individual to supply a certain service on the most part. Um, You know, it it would be hard for, even if somebody were claiming that they were Cindy Rakowitz, to use, you know, this nobody kind of example, (laughs) it would be really tough for them to act as Cindy Rakowitz if they weren't communicating with their client base the way that the client base was accustomed to be in being serviced. Am I making sense? Yeah, completely. But, um, but, you know, I agree with you, but that just creates sort of a lot of noise with your, with your customers. And if there's somebody else sort of doing the same thing and you, one has to spend time saying, well, that's not really me, or don't get confused by that person, it, it, it just takes away from the focus of servicing your clients or your customers, I think. Oh, listen, I'm one to say that if you can protect it, protect it. Um, I just think that, you know, there, if, if your business is, 
you know, not gigantic and you don't have aspirations to be gigantic and you're just operating as a sole proprietor and branding yourself because you want to, you know, add credibility to your name with your customers. Um, You know, sometimes that's truly what all one needs to do. Now, if they want to get bigger, obviously, I think that it's much, much, much more. It, I think it's crucial. I, think I it's agree. Mandatory. You know, once you start rising above the radar, that's you know when it becomes dangerous if if somebody else has a similar or an identical brand and has it before you do. Um, also, a lot of times, even if you're infringing on somebody, they'll wait a minute because. They know if you're just starting out, um, you know, you're operating your business out of your bedroom, let's say, to start with, you don't have any money. So, you know, suing you or coming after you for damages really doesn't serve any purpose. No, so, it's true. Well, there, you know, there are case studies, Paul, where um, <laughs> the little guy actually benefits by, you know, sort of baiting the big guy by playing off of a name but not really using that name. And um, because the name is different, it's really hard to, you know, claim damages. And um, a very good example of that is um, a client that I had called Booble, B-O-O-B-L-E. And this is after I left Playboy and every adult entertainment service in the world wanted to hire me. Um, And Booble was basically an encyclopedia of porn, okay? You know that they created the name just to get Google aggravated. And this was in 2003, so it was when, you know, web startups were, you know, still sort of taking place and still fairly new in, you know, the world. And what happened was the guy that started Google was a guy from AOL, so he knew the Internet world really, really well. And the whole, his whole strategy was, let's aggravate Google, let's get a cease and desist letter from Google, and then let's publicize the hell out of that. And guess what? It worked. <laughs> oh, I agree. I mean, the old saw about there's no such thing as bad publicity, you know, is an old saw for a reason. Um, and David, everybody loves a David versus Goliath sort of battle. Um, it works a lot of times. I... I know of a few instances where it didn't work, where um, Goliath crushed David and it cost David a lot of money. But, um, it, you know, it's a little easier with someone like Google, I think, or a company like Google, because they're just so big and it just looks so horrible, you know, for a Goliath that large to, you know, stomp out someone that's just doing something sort of cute. But, oh, exactly. And what happened, it was really interesting. We were just really wishing that we got a cease and desist letter. I mean, that was part of the brand strategy. <laughs> and um, we did. And you know that it was some you know, junior attorney at Google that you know, was searching for people who might be you know, abusing the brand or, you know, Using the brand's name in the wrong way or, you know, using the brand's name without the rights to the name. And it was so, it was satire. It was so different that it was, (laughs) what we did was we, you know, we encouraged the press to write about it. And then Google had so many people registering for it that 
they couldn't handle it. I mean, the system had to shut down for the day because of the popularity. It's very cool, but you can't 100% blame Google because part of having a, a registered trademark, it's a monopoly. No one else can use it, and you are obligated in exchange for getting that monopoly to police it to make sure your brand stays strong. So they have to send out cease and desist letters, and believe me, I've had conversations with clients where they've said, you know, we know if we do this, we're going to look like hell, and I say I understand that, but you have to do something. If you just sit back and do nothing, it chips away at your mark, your very valuable mark, and if you let it get chipped away at enough, Anybody can start using it. They can say, well, you know, they're not policing it. They're not doing this. So it is a very fine line sometimes. And, you know, if I'm in-house counsel for a large company, they do have people, sometimes they have outside companies that police to see if anybody's using the mark or trading on the mark, and they have to write those letters. No, of course they do. Nobody was saying that, they should, that, it, was a, that it was wrong of them to write the letter. <laughs> I think it's a good example of how when somebody knows um, both the legal elements and the branding elements of starting a brand and knowing all of the repercussions that, you know, it could, you know, it could actually work in a smaller guy's or a, a satirical guy's favor. Yeah. Well, satire and parody is a whole other discussion because, if you satirize or, or something or use parody for a brand, depending on how you do it, it's not necessarily a violation of their right. But that's a re real complicated kind of discussion. The law is real gray on that. Big surprise. And um, it's a little easier to get away with it, is my point. If you're using, doing, using a mark to parody it or satirically than it is if you're actually using it strictly because you want to monetize it yourself. But, um, you know, it just, it's much easier, of course, to do that now to, you know, to prod Goliath and get traction from it because of the Internet, you know, because of things going viral, because of social media. Um, it's become much easier to put your brand out there. It's become less expensive to put your brand out there, and it's become a lot easier to get traction than it used to be and a lot less expensive just because, you know, what do you need? You need an Internet connection and a, and a device. Well, it's very true, and, you know, point well taken about, you know, satire, and um, it is a very gray area, but, you know, for those who are advanced, it, if, you, if, you, if you want to take chances and, uh, you know, get some publicity for yourself, satire is a good way to go. Yeah, it is, but you also, you know, there's a flip side. If, let's say you're a spokesperson for a brand. You have to be really careful what you say, satirically or otherwise, or terrible things can happen. I mean, uh, Gilbert Gottfried is a great example, the, the Aflac duck man. Yeah, let's talk about Gilbert Gottlieb. Let's tell, why don't you explain to our listeners, you know, um, what happened with Gilbert Gottlieb? Again, I'm not his lawyer. I have nothing to do with this, but I do know that, uh, you know, Gilbert Gottlieb is this comedian with this kind of eye blankness. And he was the Aflac duck for a long time in all the commercials. Real tough role. You know, his whole, you know, the script was not long. It basically was Aflac. So um, apparently, after the tsunami in Japan and the nuclear problem it caused, he tweeted some pretty, what he thought were funny comments about the tragedy. Um, what he didn't do is 
probably think about it before he did. He obviously didn't do his homework because Aflac has a huge presence in Japan. And he was basically making fun of the situation and the people whose lives were wiped out, whose towns were wiped out. Um, and, um, you know, Aflac didn't think it was funny. Most people didn't think it was funny, so they canned him. Well, and, you know, that's, uh, I mean, that wouldn't, that's sort of a moral cause, isn't it? Well, yeah, and I was just going to get to that. You know, obviously they just couldn't can him just by saying, you're, you know, you're doing this in bad taste. But when you're a spokesperson and you sign an agreement, uh, there usually is some kind of morals clause in it. And they're usually very broadly written. And they say things like, you know, you cannot do anything that holds us or our brand up to disrepute to the public, contempt, scandal, ridicule, it insults, it offends. And so that's how they were able to get rid of him. Of course, he didn't realize that Aflac men apparently found lousy at comedy, but that was how he managed to shoot himself in the foot and uh, lose, I would assume, a very, very lucrative um, endorsement, sponsorship. Yeah, I know. And I think morals causes, getting, you do practice other areas of the law, and you want to make that clear. And, I, you know, a morals clause... And it is very important when you're dealing with public figures or, you know. Absolutely. And it is probably the biggest fight, one of the biggest fights I have when doing endorsement or sponsorship uh, agreements for clients, for celebrity clients. You know, because obviously the brand wants it as broad as possible. You know, and they say, you know, we're the only ones who can really know if when you open your mouth it's to say something or it's just to change feet. And, of course, if I'm representing the brand, yeah, of course we're the only ones. I mean, you know, you may think it's innocuous what you say, but, you know, it may not be to us because you may be saying something that because of our brand is taken a certain way. If I'm on the celebrity side, you know, I want to pair that back as much as possible because, you know, most people are not clairvoyant. Uh, they can say something that really is completely innocuous and, you know, the brand can tank umbrage at it, at it. Or, you know, sometimes... The relationship sours, and, and one party just, you know, sits back and says, let's figure out a way to get rid of this person. And this is a great, a great place in a contract to do that because it is usually so broadly worded. But, you know, I'm, you know, and I'm sure you can tell your clients, you know, there's touchstones. There's things to keep in your head, which is basically keep your eyes open, keep your ears open, and be smart. If you're endorsing, you know, Skittles, don't get caught in public eating a Starburst fruit chew. Well, that's for sure. Well, listen, we have to take a commercial break, Paul, and, uh, you know, we'll talk more. Wrap up in the last segment of the show. You've been great so far, so people should tune in, go back. If you're downloading the show and listen to the beginning, we're with Paul Menace. We're talking about intellectual property and branding. Don't go away. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. Yeah! If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. 
Movie premieres, TV specials, radio shows, film festivals, restaurant openings, fashion shows, charity events, product launches, parties, media training. At VR Public Relations, we do everything except make empty promises. Grand openings, crisis management, speaking engagements, television, movies, radio shows. VR Public Relations gets the job done, whether it's an intimate party or a huge film festival. In fact, you've probably seen our work in the New York Times, on the evening news, CNN, and the morning shows. Now, it's time for us to assist you. Turn saleability into profitability with the help of VR Public Relations. Visit us online at www.vrpublicrelations.com or call 1-818-783-3307. Movie premieres, charity events, TV specials, radio shows. VR Public Relations. We do it all. www.vrpublicrelations.com The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Cindy Rakowitz has won more awards than she can hang on her wall, including three Clios. Call in now at 1-866-472-5788 and you can have one. Okay, maybe not, but she will answer your questions. Back to Stars of PR with Cindy R. We're in our final segment, and we're talking about intellectual property and branding, and we're with Paul Menace, who has given us a lot of interesting information. Anything you want to add to the last segment, Paul, because I had to cut you off kind of at the end there? Um, not really. I just It's just about using your head, really. Um, if you're a spokesperson or you're endorsing an event or a brand, um, you know, I disagree that any publicity is, is good publicity. I mean, there's plenty of people. Gilbert Gottlieb is one. Um, a lot of celebrities who self-destruct just because they just don't use their head or they don't know when to stop. I mean, you should have advisors, not just lawyers, but, you know, a PR person, your manager. And, you know, just, yes, it's good to be edgy. And, of course, certain people engage in certain activities because it does get them press. It does get them publicity. But like anything else, you've got to walk that line because you can kill your brand. You can make yourself... Um, a pariah, you can, like certain actors, make yourself uninsurable, you know, to work on a show, a motion picture, and you're done. And, you know, after getting hit over the head with bad behavior, at some point the public says, that's eh, enough already. I think so. I, you know, I, I think that there are ways that once a celebrity has gone bad to salvage it, but, you know, sometimes <laughs> you... It, it really will take a lot of work to salvage it or a complete shocking career change to, um, you know, to salvage it. The good news is, is that there are celebrities who have succeeded in turning around um, their image. I think Robert Downey Jr. is a really, really good example. Perfect example. You know, everybody loves a comeback. Everybody loves a winner. Everybody loves a winner. Exactly right. And, uh you know, but it takes a lot of hard work and, um, you know, really doing something that's so significantly great or relevant or recognizable or, you know, to, you know, make that career turn. There's so many that we see that haven't really quite done that. You know, it's, um, you know, and I don't know if, you know, Posing Nude for Playboy magazine is always like your, the best career reinvention. <laughs> Um, you know, probably not, but I, in my personal opinion, and I have nothing to do with Lindsay Lohan, 
uh, except I almost ran four paparazzi over in front of her house, which is on my way to work when she moved in, and they were, you know, torturing the poor girl, and I, they were literally in the middle of the street as I made a right turn, but um, she, uh, you, you know, posing in Playboy is not usually a great um, reputation reinstater, uh, at least from what I've seen, I mean, but, uh, you know, maybe she's running out of alternatives. But even bad behavior has cachet now to some degree. I mean, look at all these reality shows where, you know, celebrity rehab. I'm surprised somebody that hasn't come up with one celebrity's gone bad, where, you know, they can parade some of these folks on the show and maybe give them a, you know, a shot at redemption. It's, it happens a lot. And anything sells on TV. You know, anything sells pretty much now. People love reality. Well, I mean, you know, reality television has really sort of <laughs> created an interesting um, definition, a, a new definition for branding. We're living in a reality television-based world, and it's a world where you don't really know whether or not Kim Kardashian got married as a publicity stunt or, you know, or whether it was for real. You know, people have their opinions about it. But there, there's almost like no rules. What you see is what you get, and that's what reality TV is. And, um, you know, I, I, I think it's kind of um, scary. It is. And, you know, people have great misconceptions about reality TV, I think. One of them is, and this may surprise some people, is it is partially scripted. I mean, it amazes me where people think what they're seeing is what's happening and that, you know, all the people on the show are completely ignoring and have no cognition that there's cameras and lights and sound people. But I, I, I got to say, the Kardashians are brilliant as far as I'm concerned. They have made a brand out of themselves that is so ubiquitous and so valuable. Um, uh, it's almost like a case study in how to take nothing basically and and just blow it up into a very huge and valuable brand and it's it, i mean you know the, the thing you mentioned about the wedding was it real wasn't it real that's that's generated so much money and so many eyeballs on them um and you know it seems as if it's been played out very well just because there hasn't really been a whole lot of backlash I think that's true. Well, listen, you know what, Paul? We're running out of time. I, one of the things I wanted to talk to you about was derogatory comments, but we only have a minute left, so we're not going to be able to get into um, our favorite subject together um, in terms of, you know, talking about, you know, derogatory defamation, all of that kind of stuff through the Internet, Section 230. So you have to come on to another show. You know, it would be my pleasure. Um, it was a pleasure having you on the show, Paul. I think that people should check out your website, www.menelawpc.com, Success by Law, and definitely go back to the beginning of the show to really get a broad education about the basics of intellectual property law. And I want to thank you, Paul, for joining the show. My pleasure. Nice to uh, be on. And, um... Uh, I'd be happy to do it again and uh, if you'd like. All right. Well, have a happy holiday, and I will see everybody next week. So you take care. 
Thanks, Cindy. Thank you for listening to Stars of PR with Cindy R. Please come back next Thursday and every Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time, 10 a.m. Eastern for more insider information on the world of public relations with Cindy Rakowitz on Stars of PR. See you next week. Bye.